Hey there, everyone. Happy New Year. This is January 3rd, 2019, the first episode of this new year. This is Rafael Garcia, back for episode 107 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I'm here with Shawan Humes. How you doing, sir? Happy New Year. Merry Christmas and all that good stuff. Oh, I'm doing great as always. I'm sure you had a great vacation traveling the globe with the rest of the celebrities. Uh, I wish there were some celebrities there, then they could then they could have actually paid for stuff. <laughs> That's the best reason to have them around. That is the best. That is the best reason to have them around anytime. If you can party with celebrities, please do so. Put the bill, put the tab on them, whenever you can. And um, we got quite a bit to talk about today because uh, this the last two weeks of the year were pretty um, hectic and, and busy in the world of mixed martial arts. We have one, two. Three events to talk about, um, and probably some other minor news stories I may squeeze in from this week. But as you know, Schwan, we're going to start right with UFC 232, which went down with the Saturday before um, New Year's, I think, whatever that date was, where yes. we saw John Jones. We saw a couple of different things, but we're always going to start with the main event. But John Jones became the UFC light heavyweight champion. Does this count as his third reign? Like, can, Is he a, technically a three-time champion now? Yeah, technically. I mean, you go by the fact that he was stripped and he had to regain it each time, so yeah. Well, there we have it. He is now a three-time UFC 205-pound division champion where he stopped Alexander Gustafsson in the third round of this um, of the fight, and you know, it was it, it was there's a lot to kind of unpack from that because there's a couple of different things we want to talk about it from the Jones standpoint and Alexander as well. But Shawan, let's just start with you, man. Give us some initial thoughts on what Jones did right to handle Alex, Alexander the second time around. Uh, with Jones, it's really it's kind of a combination. The main thing Jones did was even though he's not a really good boxer technically, really by any measurement, he isn't. You could tell he's had a little bit better work on his punches, placing them. His footwork's a little bit better, and his distancing's a little bit better, which enabled him to get off his kicks and to get those elbows and to frame, to create a frame to to escape off the angles and get an attack on the angles. Essentially, this the the old John Jones when pressured had his distance, but you could back him up a little bit if you could stay on him. This new John Jones was able to cut angles, circle off maintain the distance and kind of pick away Gustafson while he came in and eventually basically break him down over the uh, over the t- duration of the fight as long as it lasted. So I think those are the biggest improvements made by Jones. It's really hard to tell though because as good as Jones looked and he looked good more strategically to me more than technically, Gustafson just fought such a bad fight. It's really hard to give Jones the credit for what he did because Gustafson just hadn't improved at all and he fought the wrong fight and he basically served himself up for Jones. I don't, when I was thinking of ways that Gustafson could lose this fight, this was the clearest path to defeat for him. And he took it, he jumped wholeheartedly into it. So what did you accredit it to? Is this Jones continuing to evolve as a fighter or is he consistently learning looking at what his opponents are doing and adapting his game to that. Because a lot of the narrative that I'm hearing post USC 232 is that he continues to evolve. He continues to learn and adapt his game and build new strategies based around the guys who fall. I think that this is only the second guy he 
This is the second rematch that he's had, I believe. And both times he capitalized on mistakes and lap. Now I won't say necessarily mistakes. It was mistakes in his game Cormier, but this was more of a strategic change for Alexander. But he's been capitalized on these matters to shift his game and make his second victory much more dominant. Is he continuing to evolve as a fighter? Or is there more that we can expect to see from John? Well, that's always been the advantage John Jones has had. Now, I've always said his biggest thing that has allowed him to showcase his intellect and his strategies and his adjustments is the fact that he can take punishment. Because if you can't take punishment long enough to figure somebody out, you'll just get blown out regardless of how smart you are. But the biggest aspect outside that's not a physical one is the fact that he pays attention to details, he pays attention to habits, he clearly watches films, and he clearly isn't a guy who just, you know, his coach watches film and then tells him what to do. He's the kind of guy who his coach says, this is what I see. He watches the film to see if he sees it. He gives his feedback. The coach gives their feedback, and they, and they kind of come to a conclusion on how to approach the problem. And it's something a lot of fighters don't do. A lot of fighters are basically, whatever my coach tells me, I'm going to go with. And that's good if your coach knows what he's looking at and he can pick up on tendencies. But a lot of coaches can't. They see the obvious stuff. He can't grapple. He can't box. He can't go. He can't fight going backwards. That's obvious stuff. Everybody can pick that up. It's the finer details that people that people don't pay attention to, and that's where Jones gets everybody. As I said, I, I think I saw the interview afterwards where he talked about how Gustafson likes to scramble up, and if you can keep him down for thirty seconds, he'll play with you on the he'll play with you on the ground. But you have to commit to holding him down there. And a lot of guys, when they take Gustafs now, they start trying to ground and pound. They start trying to go to work on him. That allows them to – because anytime, anytime you attack on the ground, that gives a chance for somebody to reverse position or escape. Jones noticed something in that. And when he got to the ground, instead of getting overeager or trying to be flashy or trying to put a punctuation mark on the performance, he stuck to his game plan, maintained control. Gustafsson eventually started playing on the ground with him, and then he was able to take over using a combination of his wrestling and grappling. That attention to detail is not within every fighter's camp or every fighter's repertoire in between. And it's really refreshing to see a fighter who's a veteran who fights like a veteran and actually can make adjustments within the context of a round instead of just doing the same thing, even though it's not working. Because game plans are great. You have to have a good game plan. But at some point as a fighter, you have to develop the experience and feel to make adjustments. And Jones is much better prepared than most guys when he's facing them. He's more prepared than... Then Cormier, he's clearly more prepared to Alex Gustafson. So, yeah, he is growing. And I don't think it's so much technically. I think it's just he's seeing the fight better. He's op- he's opening up more possibilities to solve the problem. Instead, I'm just going to beat this guy up on the feet. I'm just going to wrestle him. He's attacking on all fronts, and that's what's separating him from the rest of the guys. They get really stuck in what they like to do. And John Jones is all about doing whatever it takes to win, whatever it takes to separate himself from the rest of the field. So he's 31 years old, and he's had extended time off from the cage for whatever reasons they were, whether if you believe the allegations or not, or the um, drug test or, or not, or the, or the suspensions. Um, do you think that we've seen his best yet? And if not, where can he improve in 2019 and beyond? Well, he's still fairly young, and even though he's had the uh, the breaks, it hasn't been due to injury. So I have to think that that year or whatever time he's had off, and it wasn't because of injury, it was because of the drug thing or whatever you want to call it. The fact of the matter is that was one year less he wasn't taking punishment. 
and it was one year more where the big the biggest problem I had with a lot of fighters is since they was especially fighters who fight a lot, basically they just go into camp and work on stuff. And during their downtime, they just do things that they like to do. Since John Jones has had this extended period of downtime, he gets to watch people fight. He gets to slowly and carefully pick apart his game and figure out how he's gonna improve it. Now that's not gonna create huge leaps and bounds, creep improvements by huge leaps and bounds. But if you're a 0.5% boxer and you can get yourself up to being 11.5%, that's a big gap. That might not be a big enough gap for you to dominate with your boxing, but it's a big enough gap for you not to be as available for strikes that are coming back. It's a big enough gap for you to work distance a little bit better. It's a big enough gap for you to set up the other aspects of your game through the footwork that would come from the boxing. And I'm not saying that's exactly what he did, but he's the kind of person who's very thoughtful. He's a very process-oriented kind of guy. And a lot of these fighters are reactionary. They see something and then they react to it. They see, they start going with every new wave or every new approach. He actually takes it. You can tell by the way he talks about fighting. You can tell by the way he talks about his opponents. He, By the time he's fighting you, he's already figured out three or four different avenues to defeat you. And it's just a matter of which one he's going to choose based on what your skill set is and your ability to counter what he's doing is. So I don't think we've seen the best of him because physically he should be in his prime right now. And mentally he's probably refreshed because he's taking a break off physically he's taking less punishment and now he's back on on the scene and he's got a point to prove so that people will forget about the drug allegations and though nobody will ever really forget about it the best way to help them forget about it at least superficially is to go out there and dominate guys so i feel that he's gotten a lot better from the strategic aspect of the game and i i don't really feel that there's enough guys at light heavyweight who've got a skill set or the process-driven kind of approach to fighting that's going to allow them to make make up for the gap in skill level and experience and, and quite frankly, just physical durability. He can out-tough guys. And I don't know of enough guys to have a broad enough skill set or strategical enough mind to offset those advantages. So you open the door right there for the perfect uh, segue because the question now becomes, what's next? for Jones in the 205-pound divisional. What's next for him, period? I mean, he has two wins over Daniel Cormier. He has two wins over Alexander Gustafsson. Those two guys are number one and number two in the rankings. Um, Anthony Smith and Corey Anderson are the two individuals that have been bounced around as the next two competitors to face him. Um, if you, It looks like Anthony Smith has an inside track, which I think that fight would be the better of the two. Um, if you were in charge of USC, UFC, you were doing matchmaking, who would you pick in the 205-pound group to face Jones next? And don't talk about heavyweight, because I'm going to talk about that in a separate conversation. What, what would you do with Jones? Who would you pick him to defend his title against? Uh, I guess if you go by the legitimacy of the opponent, well, it, it's tough for me, because I think An Anthony Smith is at least a physical and durable enough guy where while he's getting out class with Jones, he'd have – he'd have a chance because he can survive and he has a chance to make it at least interesting because he's going to seek to impose his will on Jones. So I think in that instance, it's a better fight for Smith to have Smith go in. Anderson's probably got the better set of skills, but Anderson hasn't been notoriously chinny and um, he has a skill set very similar to what John Jones has in general. Wants to wrestle, take you down, control you, use long range weapons, work you over, submit you. He, he basically has a John Jones skill set but not a John Jones durability or John Jones physicality. So I'd probably go with Smith. Smith came off a very big win. 
Anderson had a win too, but it wasn't ne nearly as dramatic or dynamic as the win Smith had over Ozdemir. So I would fully expect Smith to get the next shot. Plus, he had a little bit of a beef going back with him on televised public on TV. So I think that might make it a little bit interesting, more interesting. I was I think maybe you tweeted it too as well. But um, some people are saying that if Corey Anderson gets a shot, that that is another indictment of Ali as a manager and his uh, power within MMA and, and UFC at all. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it'd be hard not to. I mean, Anderson's had a lot of wins. He's beaten some some ranked guys, and he hasn't looked bad when he's won, but he hasn't – he's not necessarily the biggest finisher. He hasn't looked overbearing or so dominant where you're like, well, this guy's been crushing all these guys. I, I wonder what Jones would do to him. And when I see him fight, I can't – it's not like I think he's going to out-wrestle Jones. I don't think he's going to physically bully Jones. I know he can't take a shot as well as Jones. So it's like when you look at the matchup across the board, it doesn't, it doesn't set the table very well for interest. But with Ali, interest doesn't matter. He gets his guys in position to at least compete for titles, if not win them. So, yeah, if, if Anthony Smith doesn't get the shot, I'm going to wonder if something behind the scenes has been set up for Anderson. Nothing against him. He's a very good fighter. But given the last couple performances of Smith, I don't see how you don't put him in that position. Well, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to watch because um, Anderson's biggest win was the win against Glover Teixeira that he recently had. But other than that, he consistently lost – Two ranked opponents. So let's see what's next. Well, be, beating um beating a, a, a Latifi still has some weight to it. I'm sorry, That's yeah, not a shabby beat, win at all. He beat Latifi as well. I forgot about that one. But, you know, but as, as you said, it's like he's yeah. he's gotten stopped by guys who are less than stellar. And the biggest question is what he's going to do when a guy can impose his will on him. The same thing he likes to do to guys. He's going to be facing a guy who's bigger, stronger, longer, more experienced, and more durable. So it's very hard to see how he's going to impose his game on him. At least for me, it's very, it's very hard to see that. So where that takes Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. One more thing. I, I hate to bash Gustafsson, but I can't imagine. I have to say this. He just set, fought such a bad fight. The biggest advantage he had before, the reason he had John Jones tired, John Jones couldn't get those takedowns, John Jones couldn't overwhelm him with strikes and break him down, is because he was circling away from Jones and making Jones chase, catching Jones as he came in, spinning out. When he got up against the cage and Jones tried to take him down, he would just turn his back and run or get off the cage immediately. He was making Jones work because he was never sitting still. He was never walking in on Jones. Jones didn't know if he was coming in, moving out, or just maintaining distance. And that's why Jones couldn't transition ranges. That's why Jones couldn't get his hands on him for the takedowns. That's why Jones couldn't really overwhelm him early. So for some reason, his team decided he was going to just go forward. And Gustafsson, the biggest, most overrated tool in MMA – is Gustafsson's footwork. It's not that good because if it was, he'd be able to f find opportunities to get his strikes off against Jones by pressuring him with the feet. But his footwork isn't that good. So he was just walking in on Jones and letting Jones pick what he's going to do to pick him off. This kick to the stomach, kick to the leg, kick to the outside leg, inside leg, kick to the head, kick to the stomach, kick to the chest, long punches, elbows. He was just walking into a wood chipper and he didn't make any sort of adjustment within the time of the fight. Now, I didn't hear what his corner said, but either his corner had nothing for him or he just had nothing for himself because he made no adjustment and he actually looked worse in the rematch. If, and, and I expect that because Jones, Jones, he was off for a while and Jones is a very smart fighter, but you would think they would have a different plan or different plan of attack outside of just pressuring Jones. I don't know anybody who's tried to pressure Jones and that's worked because I guess Jones can't fight off his back foot 
but you'd actually have to throw enough volume, hit him enough, and be physical enough to put him on his back foot. Gustafsson is none of those things. So to me, he made it made the fight a lot more easier than it had to be for Jones. And secondly, he's never been really great on the ground. The few times he's been trapped on the ground, he was submitted by Phil Davis. But if you think about it, nobody's really kept him on the ground in all this time since in those other fights. So essentially his team hasn't been working on his wrestling or his grappling because he seemed as lost on the ground as he did when Phil Davis submitted him. He didn't seem any better, and that was six, seven years ago. So it just makes me wonder how much time and effort has been putting into rounding out his game or have they just come up with a system of fighting where he moves around, throws a lot of volume, and, and scrambles back to his feet, assuming that nobody's going to be able to hold him down because the two times he's been held down would be the two times he was finished. And that's very suspect to me when one happened seven years ago and seven years later, you essentially have the same hole in your game. It just seemed, it seemed very concerning, and it seemed like a really bad job by his corner, especially, like I said, they're paid professionals. You're paid to improve him, to round him out, and to get him ready to perform at this highest level. That was not the best Alexander Gustafsson we've seen. That was probably one of the worst, in my opinion. So, so something that actually is a good end in, point there, because something that came up was about what's next for Alexander. And, so, and he mentioned going up to heavyweight. What do you think he would be like in the biggest division there? Is he facing bigger guys? Would he be more of a threat in that group? Would his boxing translate? Would his inability to get up, as you were just saying, would that hamper him even more? What do you think about him as a potential heavyweight? Well, the thing the thing that works against him is he's got good cardio. He's pretty mobile. He'd be he'd probably have a speed advantage, somewhat of a length advantage, probably be in better shape. So to a certain degree, he'd force guys to chase him. He could stay on the outside, pick them off, make them chase, walk them in the counter. The problem is, one, he doesn't hit particularly hard. So I don't know if he can scare guys off. Maybe not maybe the lower level guys, but I don't know if he can scare off the more elite guys, more athletic guys. And two, in my opinion, he doesn't take the best shot. Like you can break him down. John Jones isn't a big hitter. Anthony Johnson was, and, and he just blew him off the face of the earth. So against like the mid-tier heavyweights, I could see him causing problems because they'd have to track him down. They'd have to trap him against the cage. They have to put two and three punches together on him, and that's going to be hard against a guy who's long, rangy, has awkward timing, and is mobile. But on the negative side, he doesn't hit, he doesn't hit hard at light heavyweight. He's not a really big hitter against guys who are durable. He doesn't he needs to, he needs to land a lot of shots to do damage. That's not going to get any better at heavyweight because he's not a natural heavyweight. So I think. I think once he, until he gets to the top four or five guys, he'd do, he'd do okay. And I, I would favor him to beat guys from seven on down. But the fact of the matter is, I don't think his chin's all the way there. And I think if he gets into extended grappling exchanges with some of those guys, they'd, even if they're not just purely skill-wise better than him, I think they have the extra horsepower and the size to finish him with strikes or to finish him with submissions. I would expect him to do well at heavyweight. I don't expect him to beat the elite guys. I just don't think he has it. I, I think a lot of his skill and his approach is based on him having better cardio and better athleticism. When he faces the more athletic guys is when you're going to start seeing the holes in his game, just like he did when he started facing the more athletic guys at light heavyweight. So that he doesn't, he doesn't have one more thing. He doesn't have any other options though. The only other option is to try and fight his way back through light heavyweight, which at this point seems awfully redundant. It'd probably take another year or two for him to get a title shot. He he'd have a better chance of moving up and moving up quickly at light heavyweight. I mean, excuse me, at heavyweight, I'm sorry. 
that division is very, very thin. I mean, we just saw Arvlowski and Walt Harris fight, and they're both in contention. So that if you if you want the title fight, that's the best route to go. So that adds one other person to the equation, and that's Daniel Cormier. You know, it's been clear that Cormier and Jones do not like each other. Um, it's been, I mean, it's been stated. Cormier has two losses to, to, to Jones. He also has, and there's three potential fights now that are on the docket for Cormier. He's talking about retiring this year. Of these three fights, which one do you think is the most important that needs to happen? But which one do you think also does the best business for the UFC because they don't have to necessarily match? Do you put Cormier against Jones for a third time at either heavyweight or light heavyweight? Do you put him in there against Brock Lesnar? Do you put him in there for a rematch against Stipe Miocic? Which one of those three fights do you make, or which two do you make based on which one is better for the sports side of it and which one is better for the entertainment side? Um, entertainment is clearly Brock Lesnar. I, I don't know how likely that fight is, but he brings in a fan base. Even if he, he even if he doesn't bring in as many fans as he used to, he's still the big one of the top three draws in mixed martial arts. For so as far as the business and putting butts in seats and getting attention, that'd be the biggest fight. It doesn't really have any sports merit because outside of being big, strong, and a wrestler, there's no place that Lesnar has an advantage over Cormier. Not caliber of wrestling, not striking, not accomplishments in the sport. He just he's far outclass. So it's not a it's not a legitimate matchup. The fight that meets the most requirements, but is also would probably be Jones because Jones would draw people. People would go to see the third fight. It'd have to be at heavyweight. We've already seen the light heavyweight twice. That's that's no go. There's no need to see that at a third time a light heavyweight. Him and Jones have history, so people are gonna buy into it. Him and Jones stay at each other's throat, so people are gonna buy into it. And the question becomes now, we know that Jones is the better technical fighter. We know that Jones is the better strategical fighter. Now we're asking ourselves, does Daniel being at his natural weight and his natural, you know, size and not having to cut as much, does that make a difference within the context of the fight? Because that'd be the only thing the fight's hanging on. Does Daniel at heavyweight have enough physicality and enough power to either dominate Jones physically and bully him? or hit him and basically put him away. After seeing him stop Stipe, people are going to say, well, what if that would have been Jones? Maybe he puts Jones away. So the biggest question becomes, does does the weight become a factor? And if it does, does that, does, does that overwhelm any advantages Jones has in youth, skill, and strategical awareness? And it's a good question to ask, given how quickly and how dominantly he knocked out Stipe. Um, the Stipe fight, I mean, it might sell, but Stipe wasn't a popular champion. And he stopped Stipe in the first round by KO. So it doesn't have as much legs as the other two. I say Jones is the best fight, and the most appealing fight as far as being sportly, a competitive sport event and competitive as far as sales and interest with the fans. All right. I can, uh, I can agree with you there. That's some pretty good analysis. Um, I'm looking forward to whoever fight that they make. I think that is going to be Cormier Jones with, uh, Brock waiting in the wings, especially with him being back in the WWE. I don't even know what that deal is really going to be like. But I think that's kind of um, the direction that's next. Uh, I want to turn the focus to the co-main event where we saw something that I don't think a lot of people picked. Um, Amanda Nunez was the biggest underdog on the card. 
stopped Chris Cyborg, and I think it was 51 seconds in the first round, finishing her via knockout to become the first women's champ champ, and she's now the bantamweight and featherweight champion of the world. Um, and I believe she's the greatest female fighter in the history of mixed martial arts. But first, before we dive into that part of the conversation, uh, Shawan, talk to me about what happened here. I saw your tweet about, um, I think you retweeted the Clarissa Shields tweet about Cyborg not jabbing or doing anything of the like. What did you see here and what happened in these 51 seconds that caused things to go bad? Uh, I picked Cyborg to win because I thought Cyborg would fight with some discipline and self-awareness and fight like an experienced veteran. And Cyborg came in there and just got into a gunfight with Nunez. And that was literally the worst decision she could possibly make. And I know people who around the scenes, I know people who who were kind of dealt with her team a little bit. That was not the plan they had there. I mean, obviously they have a head coach and he has his way of approaching it. You have to go with it. That's what happens when you, you become a scout. I give you things I see you determine what you're going to use. I might give you the, golden path to victory and you might say you know what i'm not going for it. we're doing it another way i have no control all my job is to give you the information based on film study based on the history of the fighter based on their strengths and weaknesses i know for a fact there was a different approach set up for amanda nunez based very closely on the things that i've said about her in the in the in the past and strategically and technically essentially cyborg just came to impose her will on her she basically said I'm going to walk you down. I'm going to bully you. I'm going to blow you out. And the minute Nunez hit her, instead of using any sort of methodical pressure, she just started bombing away. And anybody who knows Nunez knows that Nunez is a explosive, powerful counterpuncher. A lot of her work is done off the counter. So not only is Cyborg running face first full force into them, Cyborg isn't even fainting to create openings. She's just winging punches. So if you're just going to wing punches at a distance and run in on Nunez, Nunez is just going to sit back there and carefully and cleanly and surgically counter you. And that's all that happened. She just kept countering her. And at no point did Cyborg take a step back, reset, use a jab to throw her off, faint to get in, or for God's sake, pressure her, make her fire off, and go for a takedown. She's physically strong enough that she can put Nunes on the ground or at least get into a clinch position and smother her. She didn't do any of that stuff. She got rocked and dropped, rocked and dropped again. And it, every time she came up, while I commend her for being a warrior, she came up swinging. That was just dumb. You can't punch your way out of every situation. At one point, she had had position to get a double leg or at least tie her up in a clinch. No strategical awareness. Fighting, very dumb. So I have to agree with Clearance Shields. And it's rare that I agree with her because she thought that Deontay Wilder won that fight. And she's nuts. But she made a point. When we spar, you jab with me. I'm a two-time Olympic champion multiple-time pro champion, you jab and counter and walk in and work the body against me. Then you get in the cage with this girl who has not one-tenth of the striking skill I have, and you just start going bombs away. She's correct. Cyborg had actually gotten away from fighting like that. Against Evinger, she was very methodical. Against Holm, very methodical. Against Lena Landsberg, very methodical. And then she comes against Nunez, gets clipped on the back of the leg with a kick, and just starts throwing bombs away. Throws a whole game plan out. There was all her poise out. There was all her championship experience out and gets into a gunfight and ends up paying the price. And for anybody who always wonders why Floyd Mayweather takes time, takes a round to get, figure things out and get a feel for what that person can do, their strength, their power, their timing, their speed, 
This is why. Because when there's money on the table, you don't want you can't afford to fight crazy and reckless. Too much money on the table, too many opportunities. And Cyborg just served herself up for Nunes. No, no, hold on, I gotta stop you there because we're gonna talk about Floyd and when there's money on the table, et cetera, et cetera, in a second. But keep going. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's just as we know, Dana doesn't like Cyborg. A lot of people down there waiting for her to lose. Cyborg didn't have the freedom to fight with recklessly against the biggest hitting opponent, most athletic, most physically dominant opponent she's faced. She chose that time to go wild and go berserker. We haven't seen Cyborg brawl in like four or five years. And she just reverted back to that against the most dangerous person where she didn't have the freedom to do that. What Cyborg should have done is simple. Get her jab going to disrupt Nunes's pressure and to, because Nunes fights in spots. Get the jab going, feign it, draw out her shots, disrupt her timing so she can't, she didn't know when to explode, work the body, work the legs, tie her up in clinches, go for takedowns, extend the fight, keep a lot of pressure on her, make it real physical, and then as the fight goes into later rounds, you pull away from her. Essentially, she should have done what Holly Holm tried to do to her, but Cyborg has the physicality and the durability and the power to do so, but she just threw that all away to go into a gunfight, and she got shot. She got taken out. That's it's pretty much it. Cyborg did not show any poise, any championship experience in technique. She was just throwing bombs, and she paid for it. So before we talk about Amanda, let's talk about Cyborg based on everything you just said right there. When Dana White was asked, he said that it's not as easy as some people think for Cyborg to get the, the rematch. I know what that means because Cyborg has one fight left on her contract that they don't want her to fuck around and win, and then they have to deal with her as a former champ, as a champion and negotiating for a new contract. I would not be mad if the UFC went with, maybe Megan Anderson gave her a shot, but Cyborg should not have to fight again to get a shot at that belt. I mean, she went, what was it, 13 years undefeated or something like that? She should not have to fight again to get that, that title shot back. If it's not the next Fight, that's one thing, but she shouldn't have to have to defeat another um, woman in order to become the number one contender again. With that in mind, who should uh, Amanda Nunez defend the title against first? Should it be Megan Anderson? And before you finish that thought, I also want to point out that if you look at the UFC rankings today, uh, let's see, they've completely removed the, the featherweight, the, the women's featherweight division from their ranking stage completely removed it. So does that point to something that, I mean, something bigger in, like that we need to be talking about? Because it's no longer there. It used to be there with Cyborg's name at the top, but now it's just completely gone. So talk to me about that first. Who would you put her up against next? And should the women be concerned about their division? Well, first of all, I don't, I don't know that there was ever going to be a next because I wasn't under the impression that Amanda Nunes was going to defend that title ever. I thought she was going to fight for it and go back down to her true weight class anyways. So I didn't know that was even on the table, to be quite honest. Um, and the girls, I don't think anybody knew. I mean, I don't, I, if I recall correctly, she said, win or lose, I'm going back down to Bantamweight. I mean, there's, first of all, they haven't signed another legitimate featherweight. Essentially, let, we, we, we can just be honest. The featherweight division was built for Cyborg. Cyborg was only brought in because Ronda lost. Amanda Nunes is not a draw, and they needed someone to sell and build their women's division around. They've never brought in a bunch of straw featherweights. They've always brought up Bantamweights to fight. Tanya Evinger, Holly Holm, now Amanda Nunes. 
Then she fought Bantamweight before, Leslie Smith, Lena Landsberg. She's been fighting blown up weather, featherweight, excuse me, Bantamweight since she's been in the UFC. They don't like the division. And I don't care what anybody tells me. Dana White does not like Cyborg. And we talked about this before. I have no idea why Cyborg came to the UFC. Dana White does not like you. He let his star openly call you a him and an it. And you sign with this man? I mean, I, I, I get having the UFC title mean something, but she's in the same position Tyrone Woodley is. He doesn't like you. And the minute you lose that belt, it's over for you. This is what he wanted. And like I said, Nunes, to my knowledge, was never planning on defending the belt. And even if she did, she'd have to defend it against a bantamweight who's moving up. Megan Anderson lost to Holly Holm, got out-wrestled, like totally out-wrestled, totally made Holly Holm look like Daniel Cormier, made Holly Holm look like John Jones. Just outclassed, out-athleted, out-toughed, out-fought, everything. And then the second fight, she fought um, Zingano, and even though it's a legitimate win, it's not impressive. It didn't, it didn't set the world on fire. I mean, I have no interest in seeing Megan Anderson fight Nunes. I didn't have any interest in Megan Anderson fight Cyborg at any point. I never thought that was a good fight. So it's kind of like there's, there's, no, there's no fight at 45 to make. The girl who won the, the featherweight tough, she's dropping down. All the girls who, who are getting signed by the UFC for featherweight tough are dropping down. Who's there to fight? Who's there to fight that's going to make any money? Because Amanda Nunes can't sell. And this fight isn't going to make her a seller either. She's fought three of the biggest names in mixed martial arts women's history. And she is still not a star. So this isn't going to change that. So who are they going to have her fight? I got nobody. Um, she essentially, TJ, she's, she's doing what they're trying to hope TJ Dillashaw does in the flyweight division. She, she basically killed the division, unless she's going to stay there. But if she stays there once again, all she's going to be doing is fighting girls from the Bantamweight who are going to move up. She can't defend both titles. I don't know that she really wants to defend the featherweight title. There's nowhere to go with it. So... You know, what do you, what do you do? Durandamy was featherweight champion. She dropped down. Holly Holm moved up. Now she says she's fighting a bet. I mean, there's there's nowhere to go. They haven't put any money into it. They haven't invested in it. They haven't pushed the stars of it. So there's really no division. So then let's talk about that from a New Year's standpoint then. Because someone put it, put the idea out there that they should let her defend both titles. Um I'm kind of meh on that right now, but I think that Nunez has, uh, we've talked about this before. I think she has appeal that the UFC hasn't quite tapped into because they don't know how to tap into that market. Um, they, I'm sure that they don't have a voice that fits that demographic in the room. Everyone isn't going to be a huge star. Everyone, you know, for every Hulk Hogan, there was a Macho Man, but there was also a Bret Hart, there was a Shawn Michaels. Everyone isn't going to be the huge, huge, huge star. But where I think the UFC has missed the boat with Nunez is it almost seems like they haven't necessarily even tried to put her in a position where she can flourish. Does winning this title and doing Cyborg the way she did her, does that help? Should we expect to see an improvement with how the UFC markets her? Or is this going to be a win that kind of, is this going to be like the tree that fell in the forest when no one was there? I mean, it's a big win, but I mean, if you think about it, Holly Holm beat Ronda Rousey. Is Holly Holm really a big star in the UFC? You know, I mean, she's not a big star. She could be beat Connor. He's a big star in his country. He's he's not really a big star here. He beat Connor, and two weeks later, Connor went to Dallas. He got invited to the the Cowboys game. Not Khabib. 
So beating a named person does not make you a star. It just does. It doesn't work that way. People have to a either like you, b feel a connection to you, or c you got some kind of charisma and charm that they aspire to. It doesn't seem like Amanda Nunes has any of those. And beating big name fighters isn't going to do it for. Her. She beat Ronda Rousey, and her big comeback fight. It did how many buys? A million buys? Two million buys? That wasn't enough to make her a star. Why weren't people rolling out the red card before? I'm not saying the UFC hasn't maximized her, but maximizing her doesn't help their bottom line because she is not a superstar. She does not sell like that. It helps her. It'll help her get money. It might help her get sponsorships. It's not making a dent in the UFC's meter for sales or ratings or pay-per-views. That, that, that hasn't happened. And I would like to see them give her more of a push. I'd like to see her give her more of a chance. But then again, I'd like to see Amanda Nunes' team give her more of a chance to be successful. Because as far as I know, Amanda Nunes isn't, isn't huge anywhere. I don't know that she's huge in Brazil. I don't know that she's huge in the, the, I, the lesbian and gay community. I don't know that she's huge in the heterosexual community. I don't know that she's huge in mixed martial arts. So I'm not sure where this, this narrative came out that she could be this big star or that they should push her. I think they should push her, but she's been, she, I, don't, I don't feel sorry for her because she gets to fight the big names and she's getting big paydays. What, what's the problem? Because she's not a big star, she, I don't think she's ever going to be one. Swan, how you going? Hey man, I'm sorry about that. I um had to Yeah, no, no, that's cool. I, I just didn't I didn't know if my connection was lost. No, 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 you're good. I, I was on mute by accident. But um so we said a lot about Amanda there. I'm really interested in seeing what's next with her, what the organization does next, because just one question, because you're you're you keep you keep very you're in the sports realms, you're in the mixed martial arts realm, you you kinda have a media presence. Have you heard anything outside of, you know, just have you heard anything from Amanda Nunes herself where she's become more, more of a household name? No. Okay. I, I was just asking because I feel like people keep bringing up this demographic that I'm missing. And I'm like, I just don't see it. And I'm not saying that with any heart, malice in my heart. It's great that you want. It's spectacular. But I'm like, if she's never been a star, why do people think that the UFC is going to make her one? They don't make anybody into a star. Strikeforce made Ronda a star. Connor was a star before he got here. Who is this big star the UFC has developed? Chuck Liddell? Well, Connor wasn't else? a big star. Well, hold on. Connor wasn't a big star before he got to the UFC. That's 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 not factual. And same thing with he wasn't Ronda a big Rousey. star. He had his whole country behind. He had his country behind him though. But he wasn't generating millions of pay per view buys. He wasn't. If there was, if if it wouldn't have been for the UFC, McGregor Mayweather would have never happened. I, I will give you that. But my whole thing, like even before McGregor became McGregor. They could have a show in in Ireland, and people would show up to it. They could have a show in other countries, and people show up to it. I don't know that Nunes sells out in Brazil. I don't, I don't know that she has a fan base in Brazil at all. I don't know who these people are who would travel over to see Amanda Nunes. I know thousands of people traveled over to see Connor even before he became huge. I don't know that thousands of people travel to get over for Nunes. And secondly, 
the biggest difference is when I see Connor interviews, he has a charisma, he has an interaction of back and forth. Nunes has, if nothing else, Nunes has had interviews where she could make her catchphrase and show her charm and show her charisma and show that big personality. I have not seen it. And I'm, maybe well, the UFC and, is hiding it from us. Very, that was a very key point because she's not the she doesn't seem the type to um, be that way, which is okay. Everyone doesn't need to be that way. Um, she doesn't like. She doesn't. You don't need. Everyone doesn't need to be a character. Um, yeah, sure. So I like the fact that she goes in there and, and she wins the fights when they matter. Um, let's talk about some other fights from USC two thirty two quickly. Um, Chase Condit, talk to me about that one. Uh, just probably time for Condit to go. He just his biggest strength used to be that he would he could take punishment and you couldn't control him because he could scramble because he would take he would take punishment to get a submission to get back to his feet. It seems like now he, re he really wants to engage in grappling and not really engage pro for prolonged moments on the feet. So it's like half of his game is gone and he's never been a dominant athlete. He's never been the greatest wrestler, which is another problem. He's never been the greatest grappler. He's more of an opportunistic transitional grappler. And now he doesn't have that striking to fall back on. He doesn't have his durability to fall back on and guys are just out wrestling him and out grappling him. That's two fights in a row. He lost by submission and, 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 a pretty clean one. It wasn't like he was mounting a mounting a. He was dominating, and and he doesn't have the wrestling to dominate. And if he doesn't have his durability or his striking, he really doesn't have a spot in mixed martial arts anymore. I mean, it's almost like the sport just passed him by. It's seemingly overnight, but it, it wasn't overnight. And and maybe at a lower level he can compete, but he clearly isn't at UFC level anymore. I didn't expect Kaseya to to just ragdoll him and, and physically impose his will on him. I think Kaseya looked like the bigger guy at welterweight. So um, I, I think just think it's time for him to take a break. I mean, even if he won his next fight or next two fights, what do you do with him? He's clearly not an elite welterweight anymore. So, hmm. I just lost my train of thought because the next fight I wanted to talk about, I wanted to talk about two of the points from this whole thing. Um, Cassie Gano's eye, eye issue. Uh, I don't believe it was an eye poke. It shouldn't have been kind of treated as an eye poke. Um, what caught me, not necessarily off guard, but what I noticed first from this whole situation was the fear that emanated from Kat Zingano. You could tell she was legit scared for her vision and for her eye there. Um, what do you think, what did you think of the situation? Is it just like tough luck? Is it something that could be avoided? Like, what did you think? Of the, of the situation there, because I legit felt bad for Zingano. She looked horrified as she was being checked on, and you know that she's not the type to turn her back like that and just take the take the take the loss like that. Well, I feel bad for her because it, you know, it, it hit her in the eye, and obviously, you get any sort of damage like that, it ma makes you paranoid. I mean, I don't, I didn't lose respect for her for turning her back. Eye kind of issues are can be very problematic. Your sight isn't something you want to play around with. Um, I don't think it's going to get overturned. And to be quite honest, I, I thought the stance she was using and the way she was fighting Megan, Megan kind of contributed to how it happened. It was a freak accident, but she wasn't trying to block the shot or really parry it. She had a really awkward open, open stance, and she was trying to circle the cage away from it. And, I mean, kicks are a long-range long, are a long weapon. It's hard to circle away when somebody's throwing a kick over here and you're essentially almost trying to circle it way faster than they can throw the kick. It's kind of a risky proposition anyway, 
She had her hands up. She could have blocked it. She could have ducked it. But the way she was fighting guaranteed that she was either going to walk into a head kick or in this case, she ended up just getting clipped by the toe. Essentially, if she's a half step slower, that kick rings her bell because her, her guard was wide open. If she had a decent guard or a high guard, it wouldn't have, the toe wouldn't have hit her in the first place. So her guard was wide open and she was using her footwork to skirt around the edge of the cage. So she was a half step slower. That would have just cracked her right in the face, first of all. So I feel bad for her, but it's nothing Megan did on purpose. And it's, it's kind of an incidental accident. So I don't see them overturning it. She wants a different result. She's going to have to fight her, fight Megan in a rematch. But I don't know how likely that's going to be or when that could occur, depending on how, how bad the damage is with her eye. It, it feels kind of bad because Zingano was essentially a fight away from a title fight. Because if she beat yeah. Megan, you, you can make a Nunez Zingano fight. And you can make it at either weight yeah. class, too. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you, there you go. You can fight a Bantamweight. You can make it a Featherweight. You could, you could do either one because she stopped the champ. But with that loss, that means she's like, what, one and seven in her, one and eight, one and seven in her last fight. So, I mean, she's right back to where she started, lost all the momentum from her last win. And um, Megan Anderson has a win, but it's the most anticlimactic win ever. And it doesn't offset how clearly she was dominating her loss to home. So it's like two, two people were affected dramatically by that toe to the eye, Zingano and Anderson which is probably another reason the division isn't going to be closed down very soon. There's just, there's just not enough interest in it outside of Cyborg. So you said something, you initially started saying something that was interesting about uh, Kat Zingano there because you mentioned her stance. And I'm not sure if you saw Megan Anderson, um, her interview with uh, Dennis Luke Thomas today, or, or not today, excuse me, on Monday where she was talking about the combination that she threw that caught Zingano in the face. And she was saying that she thinks that maybe Zingano didn't do her homework in fight prep because that's a combination that she, being Anderson, throws all the time. And that even in the highlight reel that was leading up to the fight, she throws it like multiple times against various opponents and she used it very successfully. So do you think that this is a fighter IQ issue with Kat Zingano or is there there something more there that needs to be addressed? Because she's consistently had performances that just didn't look up to snuff with the athlete and that we know she really is. Well, that's always always been the call with Kat Zingano. She's got power. She's physical. She's durable. She's explosive but she doesn't seem to fight with any real structure and she doesn't seem to fight with any real consistency. Even in her win, it was really uneven performance. And most of her losses, she puts together one good round either at the end to make it fight close or one good round early and then slowly falls apart. It happened against Pena. It it just happened against everybody. It's just a common thing. Um, You could, part of it could be fighter IQ, but even if your fighter has a low IQ, your camp, and I hate to keep blaming camps, but camps are supposed to, at least have you set for a plan A. Like I always say, like uh, with certain fighters, they they make a good plan A, but if you go to a plan B, you totally befuddle them. Zingano didn't have an answer for the plan A. I didn't know what she was doing when I saw her in the cage. It seemed like she was going to try and play a long-range outside game and rush in on Anderson. How do you play that game with somebody who's longer and a better striker than you at distance? It just doesn't make any sense. And her stance wasn't a stance good for defense. It wasn't a good stance for offense. It, it just... It's like she didn't have any real answers. So part of it is fighter IQ. I have to put part of it on the camp because at some point, given what was on the table and the opportunities that were right in front of her, I don't see how you don't address these things. She's been with the same camp for, what, three, four, five fights now? 
And once again, she hasn't shown any improvement on her stand-up defense. She hasn't shown any improvement on her entries. I mean, she's great when she gets her hands on you, but she doesn't know how to create enough pressure working on an angle to get her hands on you. So at one point, it could be her fault because she doesn't have the IQ and she can't make adjustments. But once again, she can only do what she's practiced doing and she can only make the adjustments she's been shown. So if she hasn't been shown any, how can she make any? If she hasn't been working on certain things, how can she do certain things differently? It's kind of like the Gustafsson thing. She's been the same fighter for the entire of her career. And even at Bantamweight, the division has passed her by. And Bantamweight is super thin on talent and super thin on skill set. But still, she's fallen behind to the point where she can't really compete. And this is just yet another example of it. And I think Anderson is correct to ask that question. It's a question I've asked before, and people get on me all the time for it. But she just hasn't improved. She's gotten by on athleticism and durability. And it's just no longer enough, especially at a bigger weight class where you can't just bully girls. So the last thing from USD 232 um, I want to talk about is Ryan Hall. Um, man, slick heel hook injury made me stand up. I didn't, like I said, I wasn't watching live, but I saw the clip probably right after it happened and I damn near gave the man a standing ovation. What do we need to do to see more of Ryan Hall? Um, he was on Luke's show as well. He was talking about he wants to be challenged. He's not going to get out there and fight bums. And I, I agree with him. I mean, the guy is a dangerous player. Um, but everyone's questioning what is his ceiling because, you know, of the way that he fights. At I'm, I'm not sure what his record is right now, but if you look at the USC lightweight division, um, the bottom five include Nate Diaz, Alexander Hernandez, Francisco Trinaldo, Dan Hooker, Paul Felder, Gregor Gillespie, Islam Makache. Wow. What Ryan Hall also mentioned is that he plans on going back down to 145. So let's look at the bottom five of that division. The bottom five include Josh Emmett, Ricardo Lamas, Yair Rodriguez, Chansom Jung. Zabit Magomed Sharapovov, uh, and Darren Elkins. Can Ryan Hall compete with any of those five, any of those 10 men in the bottom of the featherweight or lightweight division? I think he has potential to do well. The problem is Ryan Hall is his, his, his own worst enemy. His, he's so dominant on the ground. He's so slick on the ground that if you fight him, even if you beat them, there's a good chance you're not going to look very good. And not looking good in the sports entertainment field is going to hurt your, your status with the fans. It's going to hurt your next matchup. Much worse, if you lose to him, he's not a physically imposing guy who has an exciting, dominant, explosive style. He's a guy who, doesn't, who looks like an ordinary Joe, who doesn't really sell fights. He's just here for the martial arts. So you're not going to get a payday because he doesn't draw interest. And he's not going to give you a chance to look good by getting in a back-and-forth brawl with you. And he's not going to let you get it look good by getting in a back-and-forth grappling exchange with you. He's just too good for that. He can find an arm, find an ankle, find a neck, whatever he needs to find to finish you. So guys facing him have to fight a very careful, very cautious, very disciplined fight. And that doesn't appeal to anybody. So I think he has a skill set where he could beat a lot of lower guys and start working his way up. But what guy's going to take the chance? It's hard to stay busy in the UFC. It's hard to get opportunities in the UFC. Am I going to waste my chance fighting a guy with no upside? I beat Ryan Hall. What does that do for me? I mean, he's not a name. He's not a selling point. He doesn't have a huge fan base. What does beating Ryan Hall do for me except for beating a guy 
who was just who, who's done very well in the UFC. It doesn't it doesn't have any cachet. It doesn't spring me up the, the board. It doesn't get me more money. It doesn't get me sponsorships. And and Hall to his his um his credit, he's developed a style, especially with his long range kicks and his feints, that essentially make up for any lack of boxing he has and make up for any lack of wrestling. He can keep guys on the outside and force them to take shots, force them to rush in, which creates the scrambles where he can get those submissions. I mean, it just, he doesn't have enough obvious holes for guys to want to take a chance on him. He doesn't make enough money for guys to want to take a chance on him. He doesn't have a style that's, that's going to help you if you lose to him. So it, there's no there's no plus side to fighting him. So a lot of guys are going to turn him down because they want to move up and they want to make money and they want to become names. Ryan Hall is not a good way to do any of those things. So unless the UFC starts making guys fight him, or unless he decides to take the other approach where he's going to fight his way up, I think we're just going to see him on the bench again for an extended period of time. And submitting BJ Penn isn't going to help his cause because it's one thing to knock BJ Penn out. People know BJ Penn isn't what he used to be. But to submit him, even at his lowest, BJ wasn't getting submitted by people. And this guy submitted him, what, less less than half a round? That's, that's not going to help either. That's not going to help him get fights either. So I think he's just going to be stuck unless the UFC – forces guys' hands, because the only guys that are going to want to fight him are guys who are way below him. Anybody above him is going to try and avoid him. Yeah, man, that 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 setup and finish was just... It's, it's one of those things we talk about on the mats that you don't expect to see in UFC. You don't expect to see it happening against BJ Penn. It was just... It, like, I... Like, ugh. I sold. I, mean, I would sell my soul to the to the to the leg lock god to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, I was. I know he's. I know BJ Penn has been active, but even even at his worst, you didn't see guys just dominating him on the ground like purely grappling. For someone to just finish him like that—that's the level of skill you just you just don't want to mess with. Most guys don't have that caliber of grappling. I mean, you saw what happened when he fought Greg Gray Maynard. Gray Maynard was literally sprinting away from him. Who's signing up for that chance? Especially knowing the way he finishes. I mean, he he just didn't help himself. So I, I don't know what's gonna happen to him in the future. At some point he's gonna have to take fights. And if he doesn't, what's the point what's the point of him being in there anyways? I mean, if he can't get fights, what is he gonna do? Retire or just teach? Because he's not gonna have a lot of opportunities. It would it almost would have been better if he would have given BJ a tough fight and beat him, or BJ would have beat him. I think he would have got more fights because people would have seen him be vulnerable. But you didn't really see any holes in his game there, or nothing most guys can exploit. So it's just going to scare guys off even more because this is a business. This isn't Gladiator. This isn't I'll do it for free. This is a business. And guys are trying to think about what's going to help their career moving forward. True, true, true. So let's talk about some careers moving forward. I want to move on to Horizon 14 where we saw two things I want to point out. One, Floyd Mayweather stopped uh, Nasukawa. Tension, Tension Nasukawa in the first first round. Was it the first round that he finished him? Yes. No, it wasn't. It was the second, wasn't it? Was it? I thought it was the first round. Well, he, he, it may have been the first. He knocked him down three times. Um, first thing I want to cover is was this fight fixed? Yes or no? We, I know, we, I know the answer to that question, but it, that's it's still floating around left and right. And I just want to give you an opportunity to rail on that conversation. Um, I don't think it was fixed. A lot of people point to how tension reacted to getting hit and how he fell down. He lost his balance and he got knocked out really quick. 
Floyd must have been like 20 to 30 pounds heavier than him. I mean, that guy fights at what, 122, 126? Last Say time again? Floyd was in, in the yeah. ring, I think he was fighting at 154. I mean, just, just in their actual normal weights, Floyd is competitive weights. Floyd's like 30 pounds heavier than this guy. And I know, I know Tension is a world-class striker, but there's a difference in being a world-class striker in kickboxing and a world-class boxer and world-class striker in boxing. When you make a kickboxer decide they're going to have to box, it's like a, if you do MMA sparring and you spar with somebody who can box and you can use kicks and you can use takedowns, those are safety nets and safety zones that you can use to manage your lack of all-round boxing skill. If I don't have a good enough jab, a good enough footwork, I can always kick someone in the legs. I can front kick them. They commit to combinations. I can just take them down or I can tie them up in a clinch and smother them and use knees and elbows. You can do things to get it around having to straight up box somebody. He was in a boxing match with one of the best technical boxers of all time. I don't see why people are shocked that Floyd was able to do this to him. Floyd stopped Conor McGregor after carrying him for 10 rounds. And Conor McGregor and Floyd are similar in size. Tension is two or three weight classes below him and has never really fought a pro boxer in his life. And he got rocked on his feet by an MMA fighter who was a black belt in karate when he fought Horiguchi. So it's not like we haven't seen him stunned or overwhelmed with strikes before. I don't know what else to tell people. Most people just don't know boxing well enough to understand what a boxer of Floyd's caliber would do to a guy who is not only inferior in skill and experience and class, but who is actually 20 to 30 pounds lighter than him. I mean, let's, let's just be honest. Most people, they haven't been in a boxing gym. They haven't sparred a world-class boxer. They haven't sparred a high-level, national-level boxer. Most MMA guys have it. Most kickboxers have not. So they have no idea what that guy and how quickly that guy could put it into you. And that's, that's all that people are saying. It looks fake. You don't know boxing. That's why it looks fake. You wouldn't go down for a punch like that. Have you ever been punched by a world-class boxer? I have. You will go down just that quickly. Someone, Most people have um, it, so they don't know what they're talking about. And the fact that combat sports athletes are actually co-signing on this fix, it, it's a bad look for mixed martial arts, to be honest. For the analysts and the fighters you're saying it's fake, it's just a real bad look. It, it shows that you don't really have any concept of how damaging and dangerous boxing is or how good Floyd Mayweather is. Don't let that Conor McGregor fight fool you. Don't let that fool you at all. That's Floyd can hit. He's not a he's not a Golovkin, but if he, he couldn't hit, even in boxing, guys would try to overwhelm him. Nobody ever tries to overwhelm Floyd because they feel those counters and they don't want anymore. So it, to me it wasn't fake at all. It was just a elite boxer fighting a not fighting an elite striker, but not an elite boxer in a striking match. What did they think was gonna happen? I mean, I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to talk about what um, Brendan Shaw has been saying about the fight being fixed. I like the idea that some people were saying that ten, that uh, tension went in there and fought a little bit too hard and pissed uh, Floyd off, so he got him out of there, which I think is hilarious. Um, but did Ryzen lose something in Nasukawa getting smoked the way he did? I don't think so. I think that he's still, he's only, what, 20 years old, 21? I think he's still a hot prospect. But did the organization lose something in him getting smoked like that? I don't think it really hurt. I mean, I guess if you look, from the instance of him looking invincible and being unstoppable, which is what he looked like, yeah, it takes a hit. Because you've seen him, I mean, most people don't see sparring. So you, you don't see a guy get dropped. You don't see a guy get rocked you saw him get outclassed and totally dominated. 
So from that instance, yeah, he doesn't have that air of invincibility because you've seen him be handled. But if he comes back into his field, which is box kickboxing and mixed martial arts, to whatever degree he does it, and he puts together a couple more wins, he'll be right back on top. People will still think he's a monster. People will still think he's the best in, in his realm. All he has to do is follow it up with good performances from this point on. I would compare it to when uh, Cyborg fought Jarena Bars. She fought her. She got dropped. She got rocked. And people were like, oh, Cyborg looks human. But Cyborg came back, dominated mixed martial arts, and what happened from there on? People started buying back into the Cyborg's unstoppable. Nobody can handle Cyborg. Cyborg's the best fighter in the world. It didn't really impact her because she came back and followed through with excellent performances. So all he has to do is come back and do what he normally did. As long as he's not like, I don't, he didn't take a beating. His, his corner threw in the, cor- the, the towel quick which I commend them on greatly. They didn't let him take a beating trying to prove a point. So he shouldn't really have any any damage past a, past a superficial damage. He should be fine and be able to move on with his career. Now, had they like forced him to go back out there and go out on the shield, we might have had a different discussion. But the fact of the matter is he got dropped quick, his, tor- his corner threw the towel in quick. He should be fine. I think he's going to turn out pretty well. Um, I think he's going to... Uh grow from this. I think he's going to someone that can become a face in that promotion long term. Um, I'm not, no, I'm not. There's a lot of new fans though, if you think about it, this could help him. Even though he got beat quick, how many more people looked into tension now after seeing when they found out he was going to fight Floyd? So now he's got a lot of casual people who are just, who at least aware of him. Guys who weren't aware of him before are now aware of him. So maybe they'll see his old fights. Maybe they'll check in to see his new fight. If for no other reason to be like Floyd knocked that guy out, look at what he's doing to all these other dudes. So, what do you think? Do we continue seeing Floyd mixed in with MMA in twenty nineteen? I mean, I get. I mean, I don't know that he's gonna have any UFC guys do it. I, I know Khabib wants to fight him, but if I'm Floyd and I'm getting paid nine million dollars to just beat beat up on guys who can't box, I don't see how he turns it down. I mean, I don't see the. I don't see why the interest would be there after a certain point. But I, I don't see why there was interest in this fight, to be quite honest. Or even on from a technical point, I don't see why there was interest in the Conor McGregor fight. But I guess there's somebody who has an interest, and as long as they're willing to pay, Floyd's going to show up. It's just a matter of who's going to be the next n- next guy to sign on to be part of the freak show. I want to see him in. The, I want to see him promote MMA. That's what I want to see. That's something I've written yeah. about in the past. I think that that's where we're headed. It'd be interesting. I, I don't. I don't know how much he knows about it. Maybe he's going to work with with Risen moving moving forward. That would be interesting if he kind of helped them come into the U.S. market. That would be very interesting. Um, like you said, he said he's got some other business dealings with them. I don't know what that means, but it'd be interesting to see if he could rejuvenate them and maybe bring them over to the American art market and make them more a more of a uh, success in in the Japanese market. So. One other topic I wanted to talk about from Rising 14 was Horaguchi. Dude, smooth, got that guillotine finish from guard. We don't see that shit anymore. This is like, what, 1996 or something like that. How good is Kyoji Horaguchi and what and how soon do we see him and Demetrius Johnson fight again? Um, he's really good. I mean, I know, I know in high, right now, tension stock isn't super high. But he engaged in a purely stand-up kickboxing battle with tension and held his own. He did more than enough to, to be put on a respectable performance and put him in danger in spots. 
And since he's been overrisen, he, he's basically been dominant. And outside of losing to Demetrius Johnson, and people forget that he was giving Demetrius Johnson all sorts of trouble on the feet. He just couldn't wrestle with him or grapple with him. Um, he's He's been lights out. He's really only had one loss, and he's looked better and better in every performance. He very well might be the best flyweight in the world outside of probably Demetrius Johnson, and he's no worse than maybe a top 10 Bantamweight, possibly top seven. I mean, he still can't wrestle particularly good, and I think fighting in the ring actually gave him some freedom in how he could fight. I don't think Caldwell could get the positions and the control he wants to have in certain positions, but the fact of the matter is he still had to finish. He still put in work on the feet, and as much as he was out-wrestled and controlled positionally, he still had flashes on the ground where he's threatening with submissions and able to improve position and eventually able to finish. So I don't see how people don't consider him top two flyweight. And um, basically outside of that, he's, he's at least a top seven bantamweight in my opinion. I don't know too many guys who could just straight up strike with him. They'd have to go the wrestling route. And he's not a terrible wrestler at this stage. He's got competent to, to decent takedown wrestling defense. And he's got enough, he's got enough explosiveness and enough skills as far as managing distance to where he's not an easy takedown for anybody who's not a certain level of striker. I, I mean, if I had a chance to see him fight TJ Dillashaw, I wouldn't be against that. If I had a chance to see him fight Demetrius Johnson in a rematch, I would not be against that at all. Who do you think comes out on top? I probably, I, you know what? I, I probably, I would probably favor I'm, him. I'm, I'm, I'm probably, leaning Horiguchi. Yeah, I'd probably favor Horiguchi. I, I think I think his wrestling is really improved and his grappling is really improved. And Demetrius didn't have anything for him on the feet. He did not have anything for him on the feet. So the matter is, can he keep it on the feet long enough to do the work he needs to do and to score the points he needs to score? I think it's very possible. And against Dillashaw, as much of a wrestler as he is, Dillashaw makes the majority of his bones setting it up with his strikes. And I don't think Dillashaw could just come in and bully Horiguchi the way he does. Horiguchi has a chin. Horiguchi hits harder than Dillashaw, in my opinion, and he's a more accurate striker. So I, I'd say the the TJ Dillashaw Horiguchi fight would be 50-50, maybe 60-40. Um, I'd probably say the same for the fight with with Johnson. I, I really think Johnson is is going to start slowing down, and I think Horiguchi's young enough and fresh enough and improved enough where he could take him. Caldwell's a very big guy. He's a very good wrestler. He's actually a pretty good grappler within the in MMA context and for Horiguchi to be able to hold his own and and defend in bad positions and actually finish him that's saying something Caldwell is a very good talent so you I don't care that he fights in Bellator not the UFC he is a very very good talent and that fight is one of the best fights you could have made at the weight class and he won it so I mean that's a that says a lot about who Horiguchi is as a fighter so what I love so much about this fight being made is the fact that Bellator and Ryzen were able to work together the way they did. Do you think that they are going to continue doing this in the future and they'll see some other champions both ways across the board? I mean, is there an opportunity for us to see um, Angela Lee move back and forth? Or maybe, um, I don't know if Brandon Barrow is still considered a, a champion or some other guys moving back and forth? Do you think that that's what happens? I would like happens? to see it. What if Eddie Alvarez wins their, their title when they figure out a way to get Eddie and um, Michael Chandler to go for a third time? Like, what do you think of the opportunities are in the future? 
if if you're not the UFC, I don't see how. I, I said this when we first were talking about stage signing with them. If you're not the UFC, I don't see how you don't take any and every opportunity to push your product further. They don't have enough of it. A, of a fan base, even in their own countries. If they really want to make some headway into the American market and get American attention, these are the best ways to do it. Well, I mean, you don't even have to have a belt on the line. You could just have a matchup. Everybody keeps their belt. Everybody keeps their ranking. We're just going to have a, a meet in a neutral site and see who's the best guy between these organizations at a weight class. I would like to see Brandon Vera fight a viable heavyweight. I would like to see Andrew, Andrew Lee fight somebody. I would like to see a lot of the matchups crossover from from division division organization organization especially since some of these organizations are very thin on world-class talent i would like i don't know that i'm going to see it but i definitely i wouldn't i wouldn't be against it and i would say say that's their best avenue to getting the american fans to support their product i would love to see that continued partnership um in the future i think that's big and we're seeing that a lot in professional wrestling I'm going to be talking about that in one of my other podcasts coming up, but um, that that type of partnership is, is big, and I enjoy what I'm hearing from. Uh, I'm I'm enjoying the opportunity that we, that we make we can continue working together in the future, especially if the UFC isn't involved. Uh, Why do you think these guys don't do it already? I mean, remember like when Strike Force is around, they thought about having Alvarez and Melendez fight. Like that would have been the biggest light light lightweight fight made, and they didn't have it. For some reason, like I think it's the red tape, um, the red tape, getting things, getting everything, getting everyone to agree at, at the table. Who's going to like? It's probably some minor things. Who's going to be the A side? Who's going to be the B side? Et cetera, et cetera. How is the money going to get divided? That's usually what it comes down to. Wow, I, I mean, I, I get it, but one of the main instances these guys say is, "I want big fights. I want fights to." overshadow the organization i want to fight that'll make an imprint and they're like well i have to go to the ufc you don't have to go to the ufc you just have to use the full extent of your resources when there's other organizations with guys with names with guys with cachet and you can make big fights in other countries and your country in america there's just so many options i don't know why these guys handcuff themselves and let the ufc have a a head the ufc's already got a huge head start and you're just helping them along with that by insisting that everybody stay within their own organization it's like the only way you can hold your own is if you work together. So what if your champion gets lost? If it's, if it's going to impre- increase the legitimacy of your organization and the, the legitimacy of your fighter long-term, that helps you. I think. I can agree with you there on that, sir. I can agree with you on that. Um, last thing I wanted to talk about was PFL. Uh, Sean O'Connell winning a million dollars. He's one of a few men who won a million dollars on, on what was that, Saturday. Um, but his win is the one that everyone is talking about because he retired on top, getting Vinny Margulish to quit on the stool. We saw Kyla Harrison get another win. She's out there just curb stomping people left and right. What are your thoughts about the PFL? Is this going to last, and is it good for something different in, in mixed martial arts? I think that that's probably the biggest thing, but I don't know if you've been following the – pieces that have been getting written about their business placement and how things are going from like a ticket sales and ratings rating standpoint. But what are your thoughts about um, PFL? And is this something that we will see around long term? I, I like, I like what they're doing. It's different. It stands out. But the question I've always had is how are they going to maintain this? And the reason I ask that is because they're offering 
million dollar paydays. They're having all these events, but they don't have anybody who's a big name. Like they don't have big name people in there. They don't have big name organizations. You know, they don't, they don't have, they have good fighters, but not star fighters, not from their own, not, not stars in their own country, not stars in their own region. They just have guys who were good fighters. And I didn't understand how they were going to support those paydays without the ratings and the sponsorship that comes with having named fighters in there. I mean, it's kind of the same thing that happened to Affliction. You're paying guys what they're worth or what they feel they're worth, but you don't get the ratings or pay-per-view buys that are going to generate enough money to keep you, keep you above water. And it's the same thing with the PFL. Kayla Harrison's an interesting story. She has star potential, but she's not a star. I mean, Ronda Rousey came out of retirement right now. She'd be a bigger star than Kayla Harrison. Misha Tate would be a bigger star. She could she could generate more interest, more money for them than Kayla Harrison. And she hasn't fought in two years. She just doesn't have enough cachet or enough experience in the MMA realm to create a buzz, to get those sponsorships, to get those ratings in. And none of the other guys who won the tournament do, and none of the guys they had in the tournament do. So I, I don't know how long they can maintain this. I'm, I'm glad they tried it. It seemed like a great idea. It has a lot of unique aspects to it but i don't see how it's long term i don't see how that they can last long term with this i, I really don't mm. oh did, man I, didn't my, did michael go to one of the shows right or was he uh i think mike did go one, one of the shows they have one they have a couple that are local here to dc um but i haven't had the opportunity to go to any yet I just feel bad because it's the thing we're saying before. The UFC just has such a big head start. Like everybody's playing catch up and everybody wants to separate themselves and show that they can stand on their own and they're going to treat the fighters a certain kind of way. But that comes with a cost. I mean, if the UFC, not saying they can't afford it, in reality, we know they can't afford it. But if the UFC can't afford to pay guys as much money, why do I think the PFL is going to be able to? They're not, they got one tenth of the sponsorship. They got one tenth of the money coming in on ratings and one tenth of the money coming in on pay-per-view or they don't even have pay-per-view why do i think they can afford it when ufc says that they can't from the outside looking in it's really easy to say these fighters deserve this and these fighters deserve that but if you can't maintain it long term you haven't done anything for the fighters if you gave them a couple of good big paydays what do they do for the rest of the time and, and that's that's my biggest concern how long can they maintain this model what's interesting is um What's interesting is that people were tweeting, talking about they hope that these million dollar, uh, million dollar checks clear. Oh, and God. It's, it's sad <laughs> that we're at that point in, in mixed martial arts. Yeah, I mean, it's a valid question. I saw those and I just chose not to respond because I just hoped maybe, maybe it wasn't true. But then as I read articles about how the ratings they get and the sponsorships. I mean, I know they're connected to NBC, so they should have money. But at the same instance, who keeps pumping in money into something that's not generating money or doesn't show the potential to generate money? At some point, you have to pull the card, pull the cord. And if you're giving away million-day paydays, even if it's three or four of them, that's a lot of money to put into something that's also costing you $4 million, $4 million on the front end and $4 million minimum on the back end. And I'm sure it costs more than a $1 million to, to run these shows and and put this airtime on and to do the things they're doing for the rest of the fighters who are getting paid to be there. I'm sure the budget is more than a million dollars. So, I mean, it, it's very likely those, those checks might bounce. And if they do, that will be the end of the PFL. 
I hope not, man. Um, I'm I'm a fan of what they're trying to do, and let's see what happens next. Um, man, let everybody know, know what you're working on. We're at that point that we do every show uh, where we talk about what's coming up. Let us know what what what, what you're working on, sir. Um, I'm just now going to start getting back into writing. I'm trying. I'm thinking about doing something on Kayla Harrison and kind of what I see from her as a as a fighter in her initial stages. I think she has a lot of talent, but I don't know that she's ever going to fight the level of competition that's going to make her, give her the seasoning and the skill set she's going to need to survive when eventually she has to drop weight because there's there's nobody at 55. It's for her to make any sort of name, she's probably going to have to drop to 45, and I don't even know if that's possible. But I'm thinking about doing a piece on Kayla Harrison, and um, I'm looking into a couple other things right now. I'm just getting back into writing, so I'm just kind of want my – first re-entry to be something good so I'm just trying to find the right subject matter and the right topic something I get really excited about so that I can produce a good piece for the for the people who read it or the people who like it like what I do hmm. myself uh you you probably pretty proud of me man I actually um decided to resign from one of the writing positions that I was taking on I was covering uh Carolina Panthers for an NFL website and I was like I was like you know what I don't need to be doing this anymore. It wasn't viable. It's not an interest. It's not a, it's a time suck. So I am no longer doing that. Um, yeah, I did not know that. But news I am. New story breaking. Yeah, seriously. Um, just kind of, I, I want to dedicate more time to my MMA and jujitsu and professional wrestling coverage, which I think is really going to blow up. Um, or I think that's where I want to invest my time. So you'll see more of that. Um, I have some pretty good pieces coming out over this past over the rest of this week. Uh, I have, you know, my podcasts are, are, are going along with this one. So it is what it is, man. But other than that, um, be sure to follow me at R Garcia Sports, um, R Garcia underscore sports on Twitter and follow us at MMA Ratings Net on Instagram and Twitter as well. Schwan, everybody know where else to follow you and where to follow our, our content for the show. You can find me at, at Black, Black Jordan Breen on Twitter, always talking boxing, MMA, a lot of basketball as well. So, But you can ask me about anything, any fighter, any camp. I'm always willing to discuss things I see, things I feel they can improve, areas of MMA that need to be improved, or boxing. Um, you can find us on FM Player, YouTube, uh, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And uh, once again, I want to thank you all for be sticking with us our little by little we get more views and we just appreciate your support and before i say goodbye um excuse me rafael's not going to say this but a lot of people don't understand how much energy goes into maintaining contents for sites whether it's mma wrestling or whatever it takes a lot of energy it takes a lot of time to come up with good content and with so much content out there you can't afford to not have good content it's just a waste of your time to not have it so when Raphael says I'm taking time away from this, somebody's like, well, how hard could that be? It's very hard because you got to do research. You got to pay attention to detail. You got to come up with legitimate points, talking points in every article you do. And sometimes the return on it isn't, isn't great. So you have to start making decisions on what, what your time could be spent better on and what you really enjoy and what's really important to you. But I just want the fans to know that as easy as he might make it seem, to do the podcast or do his writing or maybe as easy as I make it seem to talk about analysis or whatever. It's, it's really not. We do this because we love it. We do this because we want to inform you. We do this because we want to entertain you, but, but it is still work. It's work we love, but it's still work. 
And he's not going to say that because he's just the hardest working man in America. But I'm going to say for him. He works very hard. I appreciate the work he does. I'm sure the people who read his stuff do too. But if he's taking time off from one writing outlet, it's for a reason. And it's because this is hard work and it takes time to, to do the work the right way. Man, it's, it's um, definitely, definitely not like everybody does. It is a time stuff and I'm trying to get better at that. I know we're all trying to get better at that. So expect big things from MMA, writing, uh, MMA ratings this this year as we continue to um, continue to get better. That's the goal every day, a little bit better than the day before. So with that in mind, man, I'm going to go ahead and shut it down. Uh, let's get back to the grind for coming covering MMA. We'll be back next week, and be sure to check out our site for content by Adam Martin. Um, I can't remember the new guy's name. Mike, Mike, Mike. <laughs> Mike Terrell, he'll be there. Mike Ford, he'll be there doing your work. I mean, you'll be doing your, your thing. We'll all just kind of, we'll all, we will all just be back at it um, after the new year. So, you know, it's, it's the third. We're, we're back at it. We're picking up our work. Let's, let's get down to the grind. Yeah, guys, thank, once again, thank you for the support. Uh, I guess I'll be seeing you next Thursday, Raphael. Yeah, we'll be back. All right, sir. You take it easy. You too, man. Have a great one. You too.